Good morning, church. Shabbat Shalom. Glad to see all of you here today on this very warm day. Don't worry, it'll probably be snowing by Friday or by next week. Who knows? It's just kind of crazy, isn't it? Are you glad to be here today? I'm glad to see you, hoping that this is just going to be a, a blessed morning for you, a blessed starting, closing out one week and getting ready to start another, uh, faithfully walking with the Messiah. Well, this morning, I have a lot to share. We're going to be looking at the sixth seal of Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. And I want to just start off by, uh, you know, this morning I got up and uh, the television was on and uh, you know who was being uh, coronated as king across the pond. And I sat and watched for a few moments and it was really kind of a very interesting thing. It's not something obviously you see every day. And uh, I watched as they brought him all the vestments and all the objects that were given to him, but especially when they put that crown on him and knowing that that was five pounds and he had to sit there with that thing on his head. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought about how the word glory has to do with weight and heaviness. And it is the crown of God's glory that he bore all of our sins, all of our heaviness, he took on himself. And I just thought about how amazing that is, that before we get to see him with a crown of glory, his glory was a crown of thorns. His glory was a crown that represented him taking the curse off of this world, off of me, and placing it on himself, and I was kind of inspired as I sat there and thought about that. I want to begin as we continue this morning. Uh, last week, uh, I made reference to Joseph, the 11th son of Jacob, and I used him as an illustration uh, of having received a coat of many colors, and his brothers knew exactly what that meant. But then I misspoke, first time in 2023, by the way. First mistake this year. My dad always used to say that. But then I misspoke in an attempt to make a point about his garment being ripped from him by Potiphar's wife. But in truth, it was unlikely that that was the garment that he was wearing. That wouldn't have made it into Egypt with him. But in truth, you know, someone mentioned, well, that was probably the garment that he was wearing that was taken by his brothers. But that's kind of unlikely as well because the garment seems to be more of an adornment, uh, adornment, is that a word? (laughs) Uh, 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 A more formal garment. Some people translate it as a long robe. And when his father sends him to go find his brothers, you know, if you've ever been to Israel, it's probably not, that's not when you're wearing your longest garment, right? But my point was simply this. And the more I thought about it, the more I was kind of glad I made the mistake. Because it kind of highlighted the fact for me that twice Joseph was stripped of his garment. Twice somebody tried to change his identity by stripping off of him who he was. The story points to those occasions where he loses that outer garment and it just, to me, it just paints such a powerful picture of what the world wants to do to us because it thinks it can strip us of our identity. It thinks it can control our destiny. But when you know who you are or whose you are, then you know who you are. And if you know whose you are, then you know that no one can strip you of what has been promised to you. Yeshua got up from the table and took off his outer garment and began to wash his disciples' feet. Why could he do that? Because nothing could rob him of who he actually is and so he could serve. Yet I have to confess to you that far too many of us do not value the weight of his glory that he took for us and the weight of his glory that he has placed upon us and within us. Though we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, sometimes we are too quickly shaken in what we believe. 
Today, however, the sixth seal of the book is another one of those descriptions that on first reading can seem a little scary and quite discouraging. But in fact, if you take it in context, it is God's, it's just another example of God's word coming true. It's just another moment when we're going to see all that can be shaken in this world and its kingdoms. Today could not be a more appropriate day for us to turn to the sixth seal as we witness the transition of one kingdom to a, one kingship to a new kingship. What a time for us to consider the kingdom that we are a part of. And by the way, he doesn't say that he has made you to be in the kingdom. That's not the verbiage in the scripture. The verbiage in the scripture is that he has made us a kingdom. You are the kingdom. You're not just a citizen of the kingdom. You are the kingdom. And because of that, all the weight of his glory resides upon us. The shaking of this world and the rise and fall of its kings and kingdoms is not a reason for us to be shaken the Apostle Paul had to write to the believers in Thessalonica about this very topic because of the rumors of the rising of an evil empire. And I know that as we watch the news and all the different transitions, you know, there's that uh, prophetic fear of, of who's going to be the next president and who's going to be the next prime minister and who's going to be the next king. But listen to what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure. That means sometimes you might want to turn off the TV. If you can't handle it, turn it off that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it had come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above everything so-called that is called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God, displaying himself as being something he is not putting on robes, putting on honor, taking a title that's not his. My friends, the church has to stop giving up who we are because someone out there is claiming to be someone they're not. We are the kingdom of Christ. And we are called not to be shaken when we see the rise and fall or transitions of kings and kingdoms. You see, my friends, this isn't a time for shaking it's a time for standing. Will you pray with me? I address this prayer, Lord, to you, the worthy lamb, who took from the right hand of the eternal on the throne in heaven, because you are worthy to take the book and open its seals. I come before you now as a bondservant, just wanting to be used for your glory. And so I ask, Father, in these next moments that you would put the weight of your glory upon us, that you would remind us whose we are so we know who we are. Thank you for pouring out your grace. Thank you for taking off your cloak to serve. Thank you for inviting us to reign with you forever. May your spirit be poured out in this place today for your glory. Amen. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 6 
And again, for those who are just tuning in, as we're going through what I'm calling the Lion's Roar Revelation series, we're not just here to look at the prophetic, uh, the eschatological aspects of what we're being shown, though we're going to talk a little bit about that today. We're wanting to look at this just like we would look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, just like we would mine the scripture for what does this say to me in the right here and the right now as a disciple today. So let's read. Verse 12 of chapter 6, I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became as sackcloth made of hair and the whole, the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by the wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders, the rich and the strong, every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. <sighs> now I got to do something I don't want to do. But before we proceed, I've got to take a few minutes just to remind you about a couple things about the nature of this book. The first is this book, not Brent, the book itself calls itself a revelation of Jesus Christ. Its primary function is revealing our king to us. It is unveiling or revealing primarily of the king of kings and lord of lords. But part of that revelation so that we can see him as king of kings and lord of lords is the exposure of the pseudo kingdoms that lay claim to this earth and how he comes and reveals himself as superior to them in every way. When a false kingdom is exposed, the real kingdom can be seen. Secondly, I would remind you that this book, not me, I mean, don't blame me for this, is what I'm saying. But within this book, it does identify itself as a prophecy, a prophetic word of God. And a prophetic word of God does two things. It equips me for today, and it informs me about tomorrow. It's not just about trying to figure out a chronology. It's trying to introduce me to the king of kings. Now, why do I stop and say that? Both of these are spiritual realities that are relevant to those who claim to be bondservants of Jesus Christ, our forever king. But I have to express a word of caution. While we are focusing on the equipping aspect of this as disciples today, do not think that that means that I am disinterested in the prophetic truth that it tells me about tomorrow and some future event. The see, this seal has more than five, this seal, more than the first five, has terminology within it that causes people to want to see this in one of two categories. The first one is they want to see it literally, meaning a literal interpretation understands and accepts that the events described are actual events that are going to take place in real time and real space exactly as they are described. All right, that's kind of the literal interpretation. Others come along and say, no, that it's figurative, meaning a figurative understanding accepts that the destruction of the, the description of the physical calamity events that are being described are actually just symbolic ways of describing earthly events, but that the actual description is not necessarily going to happen as it is described. So the great earthquake may not actually be a physical earthquake. It might be a spiritual earthquake. Meaning, when we read the, about the earthquake, uh, the clothing of the sun and sackcloth, the moon turning to blood, those terms only reflect the severity of a spiritual situation or circumstance and are not descriptions of actual events that will be witnessed by humanity. So let me ask you a few questions. Are these descriptions literal or figurative? And the answer is yes. 
Come on, church. Do I believe they describe actual events that will happen on the earth and in the heavens? Yes, I do. Do I believe that the description of these events are an amplified description of spiritual and political realities in the world? Yes, I do. Is taking them solely as figurative or literal a correct way to interpret them? No, it is not. Because the book calls itself a prophecy, not Brent. The book says it's a revelation, not me. Now, I say that because sometimes people who teach and go through the book of Revelation, we get to a place where it's an either or instead of a yes. And when we do that, we rob it of its supernatural origin and intent. Now, how do I know that it's incorrect to solely focus on one or the other? Because the text itself tells me when a description is being used as a metaphor. If the whole verse is a metaphor, there's no need to identify the parts of the description that are a metaphor. Does that make sense? If, 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 if it says something is like or something is as, it's telling me that it's using a figurative description. It doesn't need to tell me that if everything that it's saying is just a figurative description. Do you understand my point? There's no reason for the grammar of the sentence to identify which part of the sentence is figurative. The description is, but the event is not. So, is the verse literal or figurative? Yes. And that's how I'm going to approach it. So, what actually happens when the breaking of the sixth, with the breaking of the sixth seal, and how should we, as kingdom of God seekers, react to it? What are we told? First of all, we are told that there is a great earthquake that is coming. Now, honestly, you're just going to have to go buy somebody else's book to do this, but you could spend hours and hours going through the scripture, finding so many of the, of, in this, just in this one section, this terminology being used by the Old Testament prophets, other apostles. I mean, we're not going to take time to go to all those passages today, but just understand that this description of a great earthquake at, at, at the end of time is something that the scriptures refer to all the time. But the impact of this earthquake is not felt by only one part of the world. It is a global shaking of the earth. And please note that this great shaking comes before the return of the Lord or the day of the Lord. Well, how do I know that? Because that's exactly what the kings and the people of the earth declare. They see and interpret these final events as the arrival of the day of the Lord in which no one, and I ask you to kind of pin this for later, in which no one can hide from God. We are told that the sun became black like sackcloth made of hair. The darkening of the sun is described not as the sun becoming black itself. Folks, if the sun becomes black itself, game over. Come on. If the... If the, if the if the sun goes, I didn't think that one through. Um, if you, like snuffing a candle, that's not what it says. It says something happens that causes the sun to become like that. Somehow it's draped in sackcloth which is interesting because sackcloth is something that is worn during a time of great mourning and sorrow. Does this ring, does that ring true in the description of the world's response? Yes, it does. But here's an important question. If they see these things and know they are the portents of the arrival of the day of the Lord, why don't they just repent? Now, am I right? 
if they accurately realize, hey, this is the, the, this sign, these things that are happening are the signal that the day of the Lord has arrived, why don't they just cry out in repentance? Now, I'm going to say something. I'm going to come back to it later, and it's probably going to irritate some of you, but that's okay. Because, my friends, there comes a time when repentance is no longer an option. I'm not in charge of that date. So until that date comes along, I will cry out to everyone who has never known, to those who have known and gone astray. I, will, I, I do not know the, condi- the full condition of an apostate's heart. I will continue to reach out in hope. But church, there's a time coming when the option of repentance is no more. And these are the signals of that moment. The covering of the sun may be caused by the debris thrown into the atmosphere from the great earthquake. But please note, the revelation isn't so I can figure out how it happens. The revelation is given so that I understand why it happens. My king has come to bring justice to the world. The great day of the Lord's wrath has come and the earth and its kingdoms are being shaken and judged. This is the revelation of the kingdom that can be shaken because of the arrival of the kingdom that cannot be shaken. What else are we told? We are told the whole, the whole moon will become like blood. Does the moon become blood? No. It becomes like blood, most likely in color. And what an appropriate color for what have we just read in the fifth seal? The faithful witnesses of Christ, those who who shed their blood and are seen under the altar, ask Yeshua, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? And when the day of vengeance comes, God puts a great big sign in the night sky. As you have shed the blood of my saints, so I have come to avenge their blood. You see, the signs aren't just irrelevant. They are directly connected to what God is saying to the world. The very next seal that we are shown after the fifth seal is Jesus doing exactly what those faithful martyrs have asked for. As the world has shed the blood of the Holy One, so God now will use the color of blood to declare to the world that they have brought this down upon themselves. They ask how long, or when they ask Jesus how long, Jesus tells them that there are going to be more who will shed their blood in faithful witness as they had. And I, and I tell you, that used to discourage me, but I, I, anymore I see that as one of the greatest things I've ever read. That there will be those who will not bow. That when you read all of this scary stuff that you think, oh, I'll never be able to survive it. I'll never be able to be. The Bible says, yes, you can. And yes, you will that there will be those who are willing to let their blood be a testimony of the goodness of God. That's incredibly encouraging. Spoiler alert for the rest of the book. What are the bowls of God's wrath filled with? The blood of the martyrs. That is the testimony the legal testimony, the witness against these kingdoms. The very next seal, we see Jesus bringing about the judgment, the avenging of their blood. So what else are we shown? 
we are told the stars will fall from the heavens. So is this talking about stars as angelic beings? We saw that in the first chapter. Is this talking about stars as angelic beings being cast down? Or is it a description of some cosmic event in which the world sees what appears to them as the stars of heaven falling to the earth? And the answer is yes. Both are described as actual events. But I'm seeking a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So why is Jesus showing me this? He is showing me this so that I do not put stock and faith in that which can be shaken, but I invest my life, my blood, my everything into the kingdom that is coming that shakes but cannot be shaken. (laughs) I want Jesus to look at me someday and say, pardon me if I grab an Indiana Jones reference, you chose wisely. So what is the benefit? What benefit is there in me convincing you that this is only speaking of a celestial event in the sky or a spiritual angelic event in the heavens? As a kingdom seeker, what does it tell me about the kingdom of this earth who rise against God and those fallen angels being those who attempted to rebel against God? It tells me the same thing. They will fall. We will stand. Amen? Do you understand why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God? Seek the kingdom that can't be shaken. Seek the kingdom in which you stand. These falling stars are described with a powerful and biblically relevant description. They are described as falling because they're like an unripe fig. Normally, I'm going to share something with you and we're going to come back to it again. An unripe fig is unripened because it is under a fig leaf. Man, I remember the first time I went to Israel, I had no idea how big fig leaves could actually get. Have you ever seen how big? I mean, twice, three times the size of my hand. I mean, and, and, and it kind of has like three different uh, leaves, extensions. And when you look at that, one of the things I think it's kind of fun to do when we're there, when, when they're you know, in season, is to take a couple of those, those fig leaves and start just beginning to interweave their, those leaves, and pretty soon you can see, wow, you could, uh, you could actually stitch together a covering with these pretty quick. But the unripe, unripened fig doesn't ripen because it's hiding under the fig leaf. I shouldn't have to make the application, but we'll come back to it later. What else are we told? We are told that the sky is split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. This description at first seems contradictory because it seems to describe two different actions. A scroll that is being opened and a scroll that is being closed. It is like a scroll that is opened and spread out to be read, but then it is described as a scroll that is rolled up at the conclusion of the reading. Both of these are powerful reminders of powerful truths. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth the work of his hands. I have said for many years that when you go into the night sky, and I love to go to Colorado or out somewhere where you can actually you know, get out of the city and actually see some stars, and if you look at it, when you're in those places where the stars are just all over, I, I've just always had this sense that if you could read that the way God reads that, that it's almost like God is looking at a scroll with handwriting. And the placement of those stars are kind of like the placement of letters in a sentence on a page. And he knows how to read them. Well, what what does that scroll say? They tell of the glory of God. They tell of an eternal kingdom. But here's the irony of the scroll in Jesus' hands. Once it is opened, the day will will come when it is rolled up. 
Do you remember what happened when Jesus went into his hometown synagogue in Nazareth? And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book, the scroll, and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel, the good news, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Roll it up, boys. It's happening right now. Yeah, they didn't like that at all. But isn't that interesting? The scroll is rolled up because its words have come to pass. And Yeshua says, I'm here, and I'm the fulfillment of that passage. Now, you either accept that testimony or you don't. You see, there's a time for the scroll to be opened and read. There's a time for the scroll to be rolled up. When? When all of its words have come to pass. The Apostle John in his gospel recorded how all things came into being through Yeshua, the word of God. His word went forth and brought forth creation. And Paul tells us that what can be known about the glory of God is written and seen in all creation so that men are without excuse. Why? Because God opened a scroll and he spread it out in the expanse of the heavens. His handiwork is, is patterned in every aspect of the earth, even down to the very DNA that holds us together, that makes us what we are. God has given a testimony, and the scroll has been opened, but church, there is a time when the scroll gets rolled up, and it's over because the words have come to pass. And if you haven't believed those words, what has been read and fulfilled in your hearing and in your sight, then the moment of repentance has passed. Please hear me, and those who are watching this someday online. This is what makes apostasy so dangerous because you are rejecting what you have read you, you are denying the truth. It is amazing to me that people can have a struggle with one particular prophecy or one particular passage, and they are ready to walk away from Yeshua, and it's like, well, what about the rest of it? What about the walking on the water, raising the dead, healing the sick, doing things only God can do, but with one verse that they can't figure out, they're willing to throw all of that testimony, that revelation under the bus and walk away because their finite mind, their carnal flesh struggled. Well, with how, how can this verse be about Israel and be about Jesus all at the same time? My friends, do you understand that virtually every prophecy that we consider to be messianic normally has two fulfillments? People get all caught up like the, the, the virgin birth passage in Isaiah. Well, it sounds like that's going to be something that's going to happen right then in, in, in Ahaz's life. Yeah. And then it also sounds like it's going to be about the Messiah. And by the way, within the context of Judaism, within the context of the Jewish sages, they know that until they start talking to Christians. And then suddenly, what they know is true about virtually every single messianic prophecy in the text of Scripture, they use to talk you out of believing And when you stop believing the word, roll it up, boys. Game over. 
because judgment begins first with the house of God. We are told that the kings of the earth, the great men of every status of life, run and hide themselves from God and call on the mountains to fall on them and protect them. Now, if they understand that the day of the Lord has come, having a mountain fall on you doesn't really do you much good. I mean, if, if you realize that the Lamb of God is here with wrath and, and you go ask the, the mountains to fall on you, it means you're going to die unless you understand the figurative use of mountains in the Scripture, which throughout the pages of Scripture, mountains mean kingdoms. They're used interchangeably. The mountains of the earth... And, and this is kind of how we know. This is their final act of disbelief. They run to the mountains of the earth, the world which they so desperately wanted to save, the planet they are so desperately, arrogantly pretending to have dominion of. They, they want the earth to hide them from the one who created it. That's not going to work. Neither will the kingdoms of this, of this world you see, it may very well be that their final act of disbelief, their final act of not being willing to acknowledge God is to turn to their prime ministers and their presidents and their kings and their parliaments and their congresses and say, do something. You know, I know that's probably true because all the kings of the earth, all the politicians, all the kingdoms gather to make war against the lamb. Instead of seeing the sign and realizing, hey guys, you chose poorly. And repent, they double down and turn to their government to provide for them. but we're seeking a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We're seeking a kingdom that will establish the mountain of the Lord forever, the one that will not be moved. If you're a kingdom seeker, you're not looking for a place to hide. Oh, church, hear this. In, this, in these last days, and this is why I get so mad at prophecy teachers. If you're reading the Revelation and you're coming away from the Revelation looking for a place to hide, you're not reading the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Because the Revelation of Jesus Christ isn't teaching me where to go to hide. It's teaching me how to stand. Because I'm not running and hiding on the day of his wrath because he's coming to avenge the blood of the saints. The heavens declare his kingdom is forever. The earth shows forth the work of his hands. He who was both heaven and earth has come and tabernacled among us and declare the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Seek it. The great day of their wrath is the great day of the shaking when the scroll has been rolled up, the truth has been revealed, the word has been shown true, and now it's time to roll up the scroll for the time of shaking has come. So all of that is what we have been told and what we have been shown. So what do we as kingdom seekers do with that? What do we do as being a part of a kingdom that will not be shaken? The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 gets to a place where he says these, writes these words, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, 
But before he gets there, his entire book is about being found faithful and standing at the time of the shaking of the worlds and its kingdoms. But before he gets to this magnificent therefore, he pins some words that I think are very appropriate for kingdom seekers to hear. Earlier in chapter 12, verse 12, he says this, therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And all God's people said, huh? So forgive me for being arrogant enough to try to summarize it with two words. But if I was going to summarize that sentence, this is what I would say. Grow up. Growing is becoming stronger. Growing is becoming more firm in our faith. Growing is growing into the strength of our bodies. Growing is growing into the destiny of our identity. You know, when I, when I was a child, I thought like a child. I felt like a child. But growing up in Jesus means I reach the point where I stop being shaken by things that shouldn't shake me. Far too many believers... And I don't mean this to be, I really don't mean this to be judgmental. When I type these things, I think, Lord, this sounds so heavy. But it's just a truth that far too many believers, too many of us are comfortable with our weakness. We, we just get so used to it and we keep believing the lie that this, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's all. No, you're a sanctified, spirit-filled, born-again, spirit-filled, equipped person who has been called to stand, grow up. Stop making excuses. But it's hard. I know. <laughs> Come on, we can all say amen to that. But it's hard. I get it. So why does the writer of Hebrews say this? Because we're seeking a kingdom that can't be shaken. Don't let your, you're not going to stand if you don't strengthen your legs. Remember the feast of Israel, the regalim, those walking feasts, finding yourself in the presence of the Lord. But now we don't have to go to Jerusalem to be in the presence of the Lord for he, he will meet us wherever we're at. This needs to be a season of seeking him and not making excuses. Too many of us, including myself, have spent too much time as unripe figs in the body of Christ. Remember what causes a fig to not ripen? It's the one that spends too much time under a fig leaf, hiding from the sun. Do you remember what Adam and Eve did after their sin was exposed? They covered themselves in what? Fig leaves. And the Hebrew word for fig leaf is used as an idiom to this day for making excuses. Now, I know this isn't a pleasant thing to say. But church, if we're going to stand up, we've got to grow up. Amen? Because if we don't, we're just a an unripened fig hiding. And Jesus hasn't called you to hide. He's called you to stand. And he's given you everything to stand. The writer of Hebrews says in verse 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, the, the, the making of holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And if I would just be allowed to sum this up with two words, may I just say, show up. What do you mean by that? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. When do are peacemakers needed? When people are in conflict. In church, the world needs us to show up. Amen? They need us to not be so afraid of their sin, so afraid of the chaos of their lives, because, man, it is messy. 
You used to have to watch Jerry Springer to see that kind of mess. Now you can just go to church. And you know what? That's okay. Because messy people need a Messiah. And my prayer for HFF Saturday Church is that this is all, will always be a place where messy people can find grace and find healing and maybe a backhand every once in a while. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but if we don't show up because we're hiding, how do we walk in holiness? How are we seen as set apart for the Lord if no one can see us? Church, we have to grow up, we have to show up. Even when the showing up means we have to do so in some very uncomfortable, difficult scenarios. Finally, he says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it, many be defiled. Man, I'm just going to stop right there. Folks, if bitterness has taken root in your life, you need to understand it is not only destroying you, it is destroying your witness and it is destroying people around you. I keep running into that. I mean, in the last six months, I have run into this over and over and over again in people's lives. I've dealt with it in my own life. That no bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. That is a terrifying statement. And I, I say this to all who are here and all who are watching today and someday, I beg you to back away from the bitterness that is causing you to consider walking away from Jesus Christ. I plead with you. There is no amount of brokenness. There is nothing that has been done to you. There has not been a single moment in your life when he ever betrayed you. Not once. He has never failed to love you as you should be loved. He has never failed to serve you as you need to be served. He has never failed to provide for you as you need to be provided for. He has always been there. Because if he has not done that even once, then he's not who he claims to be. And all of this is a sham. I have people try to convince me that God isn't who he said he is. I'm like, you're just standing at that same tree in the garden where we sacrificed our birthright over something we wanted to eat. Come on. And then we found ourselves in fig leaves. How would I sum summarize this? Stand up. Take your stand while there's time to do it. Don't give up. Stand up. Because if you don't, you have to know that if you give away your place in the kingdom because of one verse you don't understand or one prophecy because you listen to some Jewish rabbi on, on, on TikTok or on, on the internet undermine and tell you things. Let me just warn especially this body of Christ and those especially in the messianic flavor of the body of Christ. When you are listening to these rabbis who are trying to tell you nobody in Judaism ever thought of that, what they're not telling you is that you can go to the, their, their writings and you can find multiple rabbis that disagree with what they're telling you. They're lying to you. The ones that are doing that, not all rabbis are liars, please don't go there. But the ones who are trying to cause you to walk away from Jesus aren't even representing how Judaism even handles those verses. 
and people who are believers are giving up instead of standing up. So let me conclude. Shavuot is coming. We're 22 days away from the anniversary of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And as I close, I want to draw your attention to these words recorded by Luke about that day. But Peter, taking his stand. That's what Shavuot is about. It's about standing up to declare the truth. Raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they they shall prophesy. And then he goes on. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Church, it's time to stand up and show up and declare Jesus is the king of kings and his kingdom is going to shake this earth, the heavens and all of its kingdoms, both earthly and heavenly. And he is going to establish his mountain above all others because the one who shakes cannot be shaken and the one who stands will not fall. Worship team, you can come back. The real issue is not whether the planet will be shaking, though it will, nor is the real issue whether or not the kingdoms of this world will be shaken and fall, because they will. The real issue today is, have you personally believed the scroll of the book? Have you personally believed the testimony written in the heavens, patterned in the earth, written in the pages of his word, and best revealed in the incarnation of God when his word became flesh and dwelt among us? Are you ready to take your stand? and be a part of that great throng of worshipers crying hallelujah to the Lamb. As we go into this song, these are the thoughts that I would like for you to think about. Am I growing up? Am I showing up? Am I ready to stand up and be counted for him? Let's worship. And let's open the scrolls of our heart in this season.